coming up next. Screw your courage to the sticking post, because we're going to read Macbeth. Part two of our discussion about Macbeth. My name is Nathan Alberson, and I am still, even after all this time on episode 15 or whatever this, I am still your humble and obedient host. I've maintained my humility, I've maintained my obedience, and I am still the host. And I am joined today by Mr. Jacob Benzel. How are you doing, Jake? Doing well. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. Jake, of course, is the pastor who is a master of reading, which is why he's here, because he has read Macbeth, and he is going to share his thoughts, and it's going to be amazing. I am also joined by Mr. Brandon Chastine. Brandon Chastine, how are you doing today? I'm doing well also. Oh, good. And Brandon is, of course, the PhD, ABD, the master of reading, and, well, Jake's the master of reading, but Brandon's the master of reading, who's not a pastor of reading. Today we're going to talk about Macbeth even more than we already have, because this is part two of our discussion about Macbeth. Let's talk about Macbeth as a character, and how do you make sense? I think the great Shakespeare... (laughs) plays are in a sense psychological mysteries like part of the fun of Macbeth and the fun of Hamlet in particular are figuring out why does Macbeth act the way he does why why is Hamlet so inert for most of the play why does it take him so long it's interesting and it's interesting to see how different performers make sense of that and it's interesting that Shakespeare doesn't always fill in all the gaps for you so how do we understand the transition from Macbeth being this hero who loves the king to this guy who's able to kill the king. So I guess we're going to talk about that, right? But yeah, well, we might like how well. does that? Where does that transition happen? Why does it happen? Because it doesn't seem like it makes any sense. He has this high... Somebody I read somewhere said he has a visionary moral sense that no one else has. And so he has all this conflict about killing the king, and then somehow he has the dagger and he does it. And how does that work? How does all these weird visions that he's having work? Like, is he crazy? Do the witches even exist? Well, he's an ambitious man, and his wife has said that he's always been an ambitious man. He just lacks what the ill intent or the uh, illness of mind or whatever it is. The milk of, he has too much of the milk of human kindness. Yeah, to act on his ambitions. Something happens, though. There's a catalyst, and the catalysts are, are the weird sisters. Mm-hmm. And they awaken in his mind the possibility of being king that... It could be something that's realized, and then the opportunity to make that reality happen presents itself, and so he can't help but think about it. And he tells his wife, she's really the, you know, he's being acted on. He's being acted on by by outside forces that are conspiring with his own ambitions. And so he's got the witches there to sort of plant the seed in his mind, and then he's got his wife to drive him to it. And as it turns out, men follow women into sin sometimes it's almost like the garden of eden or something (laughs) almost ambition and then the turning point for him he's already obsessed with the prophecy he's seen it fulfilled he becomes was it the glamis thrain of cawdor and then you have lady Macbeth, who basically says he's not a man 
then she's just fiercely determined to do it and she's going to see him do it or she'll do it. You kind of get the sense that maybe he wasn't ever quite serious about it. He talked about it before with her, obviously, and put the idea in her head and then she just like locked onto it in a way that he never did. I think it's important. The one thing that I really liked about the, I'm probably going to be comparing the stupid Patrick Stewart version with the stupid Fastbender versions. I would recommend seeing the Stewart version if you're watching this. Um, It is a little gory, but it's good. But the the Stuart version gives you very witchy witches, real over-the-top, bloody, kind of creepy, scary witches. And I thought that really helped my understanding because every other version, and I've seen a few of, of Macbeth that I've seen, has kind of played with the idea of, are they really witches? Or is it just some old kind of medicine women that put this idea in his head? And, you know, is it just him? They've played with that. I think it's much more interesting, to me at least, to just make them witches or at least make make it so you could believe that he believes that they're witches. Put you in the mindset of someone that believes there is such a thing as witches. And don't, again, bring your 20th, 21st century perspective that there is no such thing as witches. You know, it's much more interesting if he's really motivated by this portent and by this supernatural force, you know, that seems to be really informing what he's doing. Yeah, that is in the very name Weird Sisters, because at the time, weird meant fate. And so you have this sense of fate to it. And so a question the play continually is asking you is, is this all Macbeth's doing? Or was he fated to do it? Or is he driven because he found out the prophecy? He is his own undoing, right? There are other stories that play with these same notions. But this idea that you hear the prophecy, and because you've heard the prophecy, therefore you bring the prophecy about. And so, but I I mean, what do you do with this weird which element and you have to deal with the fact with Macbeth is that he's an incredibly contemplative man he's a man that knows himself really well Mm -hmm. and yet he's willing to commit this awful crime I mean with all the others Shakespeare with Iago with Richard with with most of these guys there's some level of self-deception they think they're going to get away with it Macbeth never really seems to think he's going to get away with it or madness you know or madness King Lear yes he just goes absolutely crazy but Macbeth always seems to be looking himself squarely in the face I think that's what makes him makes it weird like you, Mm -hmm. you, you you tend to equate the knowledge of you know, I mean, you'd think if you knew what was best for you, you'd do what was best for you. But but haven't haven't we all had moments where we have looked sinful in the face and said, I know that this is destructive. I know that this is going – I know that the instant that I commit this sin, I'm going to feel guilty about it and that there are going to be consequences. And for whatever insane reason, we do it anyway mm-hmm. because – Somewhere in the back of our mind, it, it's already decided. It's we, we've already given in to whatever the temptation is. We've already accepted the fact that we're going to deal with these consequences because we want the forbidden fruit, Be, or because we want whatever comes along with the forbidden fruit, or some stupid thought that if you don't do it now, you'll never have that pleasure. Yeah, and, and so that's just... part of what's conspiring against Macbeth yeah. is he's got this prophecy, and then all of a sudden, here the king is in his power. Mm-hmm. It, the moment is there, and that's what uh, Lady Macbeth plays on. The moment's here. The moment's now, and you're too afraid to seize the moment. Here it is. It's all come together for you, and it's been handed to you. You have a prophecy that ensures that it will happen. You have the king drunk and asleep upstairs in bed, and I've already drugged the, the people there. 
go up and play the man. And he's got the pressure of his wife, the feeling that this is all written in the stars. And it's a, it's a hard thing for a man to stand up to his wife if he has any real affection for her any real love for her. Do you think Adam didn't know that it was wrong and that he was going to suffer consequences? I think Adam knew. I think Adam knew that it was wrong. I think Adam knew he was going to suffer the consequences. I think Adam had the wherewithal to look it full in the face. Maybe he didn't, but I think that the nature, it, it says that the woman was deceived. It doesn't say that Adam was. I don't think Adam was deceived. I think Adam knew what he was doing and he chose to go in with his wife. And I think that the, a similar thing is true of Macbeth deciding he's going to follow Lady Macbeth in this. And she's given herself over and they're going to conspire to do it together. And you see his weakness of resolve throughout the whole thing, but he's drug into it. It's just that conspiracy of his ambition, the, the prophecy, his wife, the circumstances. And then there it is and he's done it. And he might as well follow it all the way down yeah. down the road because he's murdered his sleep. He's murdered his peace. So he might as well murder everybody else. I like that theory. I think that theory helps to explain a question that a lot of critics have, which is why is Lady Macbeth filled with such resolve before the murder and then falls apart afterwards, whereas Macbeth only grows in resolve afterwards because he went into the whole thing with his eyes wide open. She was self-deceived in some sense, and she, when she actually sees the consequences, falls apart. But he just gives himself to it, and then he says, you know, well, if I'm fated to do this, I might as well just murder the crap out of everybody, you know. Who threatens, who I feel the least threatened by. Okay, well, and then you she, pushed she me looks, over the line, so now I'm over the line. I'm just going to... Yeah, and so she has... She labors under the illusion that she can control him. And once Pandora's box is open, she realizes that she can't. He's let loose, and now she sees what she's done, and he's not the man that she loved she, he, anymore. He's he's not, he's scary. He's a monster. Um, and you see this happen um, in young couples that are dating, you know. the Often what'll happen is a guy will know that, that there are certain lines that I can't cross physically. And if I cross those lines, I know what's going to happen. And then you'll see... So we can't hold hands. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, so we can't hold hands, right? And the girl will push and say, I need to feel that affection. Come on. And she thinks that she can control, you know, where the lines are. She thinks that she can, you know, push these boundaries here or there and that things are going to stop. And they never do because what happens is at a certain point, the man follows and follows and follows and follows and then he snaps and he becomes the monster. Pandora's box is open and he's not stopping. And, and she can't make him stop. And suddenly he's scary. And suddenly she doesn't know who it is that she's with anymore. And you see that play out in relationships. I was a college pastor. I saw it play out in relationships over and over and over again. And that, the exact same thing is what I think is going on with Macbeth and Lady Macbeth here. And they both end up presenting each other because yeah, she's and like, she, why did you become a monster? And he's like, you did this you to did me. This. I'm yeah, a monster. What, what did you expect? <laughs> <laughs> I told you. Yeah. I told you this would happen. Right? You threatened my manhood. <laughs> There, there is an element of well, go ahead. Well, it, it's actually that's exactly what she she says. You're not a man, and he says, "What's the what's the line?" He says, uh, "I've done all that a man can do. Who can?" Yeah, if I do doing more is to be no man yeah, at who, all, who and she I? says, "You'll be so much more the man." Mm -hmm. yeah. And he knows the truth. And do you think that Macbeth was ever a good man? I think that Duncan thought he was a good man. <laughs> <laughs> Duncan didn't seem like the greatest judge of character. Well, that's interesting because some people think that Duncan is supposed to be presented as a good king. He is presented as a good king. Yeah. He's always played by a goofball in the movie versions. Really? Always, he's always kind of played as your uncle that you don't well, quite Well, Shakespeare does. sets it up that way. Yeah. It's like the scenes are, are that way for a reason. Here's Duncan, and he's like, 
man, I trusted the Thane of Cawdor with my whole life, and I built my... Man, it's too bad you can't see behind somebody's face to their true character. You yeah, know? I'll make you Thane of Cawdor. <laughs> and, and, then, and then in walks... And literally in walks Macbeth, and Macbeth's yeah. like, I love you, king, and like, he's yeah. already plotted with his wife to murder him that night, yeah. you know? And Okay. <laughs> Greenblatt's stupid. I think it was him. I think he's the one who said it. <laughs> Well, Macbeth has one of his soliloquies is talking about how good of a king he was. Yeah. He can be a good. He said he was. He, king. he, yeah. You know, it was his his meekness and his humility and his kindness that blinded him to seeing the evil behind people. But that's one of the things that I think Shakespeare wants us to to think that that line of the king is dumb, that there's no art to see what's behind a face because that comes up again and again. Hmm. And like uh, just a couple scenes later, or maybe it's earlier, I can't remember which, Lady Macbeth and meets Macbeth and says, I read your face like an open book. I see what, and then proceeds to explain to him exactly what's going on in his heart and mind. And there's a number of times or at least once or twice where Macbeth says, if only our faces could reflect what's in our hearts or let's, you know. Yeah, let's that, cover what's yeah, that's what he says. Yeah mask our faces to hide what's in the heart or whatever yeah there there does seem to be this theme of Macbeth's insecurity over so his wife knows where to push the dagger with him she knows to get him at his manhood for some reason that's a, that's something that is going to set him off and she knows it and Shakespeare plays with that theme because later on when Macduff hears of the murder of his family Right. Malcolm says, okay, come on, be manly now. Let this turn into anger. And so one of the things that is this initiative to actually do the action. And so Macbeth is continually delaying and he's thinking through in his head and he's wondering, is this the right thing to do? Is this the right thing to do? And then finally, where the turning point is, this is when he decides, okay, I'm just, I'm going to do the thing and think later. Right. And what does he end up doing? He kills a child. He orders the death of children and it's just horrible. And what had horrified him earlier about Lady Macbeth was where she said she would dash her own child, kill it. And then he says, "You, let's hope you only have male children, you monster, yeah. basically is what he tells her. Then he becomes the monster who can dash children to pieces. And it's this attempt. It's what you see with men all the time. Their attempt to become men just turns them into parodies of men. Yeah, monsters. I guess Macbeth gets to join the... League of Monsters. The, monster. <laughs> the League of Monsters. <laughs> That'll be our new title. We're gonna have. Gee, I wonder who's gonna be the monster in Dracula. <laughs> I'm gonna guess not Dracula. Yeah, I found it really interesting that she was able to stab him just by saying, "Like, you don't have any testicles." <laughs> I mean, like, man, he is like. I mean, Weak. I get. Yeah, yep. I mean, he is one insecure dude. <laughs> for that to just set him off, and he becomes. But that's what you see with. With these tyrants is that a lot of it comes from the fact that they are just paranoid and insecure. can't deal yeah. with any sort of leadership like this. It just sets them on, uh, sets them off and they lose control. Well, that's the thing is what's the thing that Macbeth says at, at the end of uh, at the end of his life or towards the end of the play? He, he says, you know, I should have friends and I should have uh, the honors of old age, mm-hmm. and I should have. And the the reality is, the minute he set about to give himself to treachery is the minute he he murdered sleep. He murdered his ability to be at peace. He can't have good relationships with people because who knows what traitor is lurking around every every corner. He can't cultivate those good friendships anymore because people might know. People do know. People do suspect, and his own conscience accuses him. So there's no. 
There's no peace for Macbeth. Well, Macbeth fits into this category as kind of like Hamlet of men who are too lost in their own heads, right? And the sort of men that they become when they're not able to control or tame that. I'm not quite sure where to go with that. But if you look through, like, well, Henry, uh, Henry the, did he become Henry V, young Prince Henry? Yeah. He's not a man who's necessarily just lost in his head. And you get the sense that he becomes a good man, right? These other villains are almost these Dostoevsky and introspective narcissists who when they realize that this is causing them to, they don't want to really take responsibility for that and change that. And so then it just leads to disaster. And so I think Shakespeare does brilliantly play with the theme of manliness. What does it mean to be a man? Well, what's, I think, even broader than that, what's natural? One of the themes of the whole play is this is natural, this is unnatural. And in order to do great wickedness, you have to defy what's natural. And so it's not a coincidence that the weird sisters are bearded. Mm -hmm. It's not a coincidence that uh, Lady Macbeth, in order to steal herself, to convince her husband to go through with the murders, has to cry cry for the spirits to unsex her and to uh, replace her milk with gall. And And her great metaphor is that she would take the toothless baby from her lips and yeah, dash it to pieces. So so women become men and men become monsters. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what wickedness does and that's what giving your and that's how you give yourself to wickedness. Women become men, men become monsters. And all order is overthrown and everything is unnatural. The extra twist that Shakespeare adds to that that only Shakespeare would add to that that like for instance you might see a Marlowe play where women become men and men become monsters but what Shakespeare then adds is this dimension of Macbeth having this great self-understanding and yet it availing him nothing and that's what I got stuck on a lot back in the day was it actually ends up being his own worst enemy right I mean he understands the (laughs) futility you know he finally gives the great existential speech of all time with tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow um and how can you how can you have such wisdom about yourself and and yet be idiomean just be this turn into a thug basically an insecure thug um that that always bothered me and yet in hearing you in listening to you guys discuss now i was just i was just thinking you know i know people like that you know whose whose self-knowledge avail them nothing people that take pride in their understanding of their own sin christians who come from a reformed background perhaps that really understand their own fatherlessness their own self-destructive tendencies and yet they do not have god's grace to overcome a single bit of it and they end up feeling bitter towards god and towards everyone else because for exactly those reasons because they see them they see the train wreck the train wreck happens and then they 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 just kind of blame god and blame everybody for yeah i see i knew that would happen i knew that would happen it's your fault mm-hmm. and so i and it's my fault but and, what, what yeah, am i gonna I do god, what can god I do? Made you me made me way. esau mm-hmm. you made me uh and really, what does any of it matter anyway? Judas, so I guess I might as well play the part of Judas. Yeah. It's, you know? They become damned by their own, in their mind. They become damned by their own understanding. And uh, that's a good way to put it. Their foolish hearts are yeah. darkened. God can give you grace and you become, can be an Augustine and understand yourself. Or you can become Macbeth. And it's a good warning to any anyone who has that tendency. It's a good warning to the three of us sitting here talking about human yep, nature. Exactly we I'm can un- we can understand human nature really well because we read Shakespeare and we can still be damned. You know. Yeah, when I read Macbeth, I see man. He rings a lot of this rings true. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't for God's grace, I could easily be a Macbeth. Yeah. yeah, especially for the 20th century man or the 21st century man now who has spent the 20th century 
I mean, the 20th century is basically us looking at the Holocaust and us looking at our own evil. I mean, that's literature in the 20th century. That's every book we've read that's been written after 1900 is let's understand our own evil. And that's my life. That's what I try to do. That's what interests me is understanding my own evil. Um, and that's what we do. That's what modern movies are about. That what That's what Game of Thrones is. That's why Breaking Bad is so darn you know, addicting, but you can understand your own evil and it can do nothing for you, you know, unless you have the grace to not listen to Lady Macbeth. This is part of the brilliance of Shakespeare is he understood, probably understood this about himself, that mm-hmm. he could have been a Macbeth. And you get the sense that maybe he was more of a Prospero or whatever, right? Yeah. Someone whose wisdom became good for them and they learned discernment yeah, I think and really, kindness and gentleness and the fruit of the spirit. He just understands human nature so well. That's yeah. the most bland and boring thing to say about William Shakespeare. But uh, <laughs> turns out William Shakespeare <laughs> understands human nature. He was brilliant. Hey. That scene where yeah. <laughs> that scene where poor Macduff's uh, family gets killed, the, the most emotional scene, maybe the only really emotional scene of the play for me. It and, certainly was the most emotional one in the Stuart performance. In the Stuart movie, yeah. Um, killed that scene. It was really great. Yeah, that guy. And he didn't even, I thought, did that. He didn't do that great of a job in some Anywhere else. But, but he, he did it in the Stewart it, performance, he did? I yeah. did. Yeah, I didn't think he was great in, anywhere else in the play. But that moment, he. Well, that's yeah. a great moment. It's where you see the two different types of manliness that he's building mm-hmm. for you. You see his response, which leads to action that actually is good versus Macbeth who's just caught in this mire and can't get out of it. But my only point in bringing that up was Shakespeare's insight into human nature when he says, did heaven look on and would not take their part? What a beautiful, I mean, anybody whose kid gets sick or has a death, you know, is going to go through, even a good man is going to go through, did heaven look on and not take their part? And it's just like, wow. Yeah. And your mind flashes in that moment to all of the wickedness of the world, all of the awful things that you, you dare not even think about because it's going to make you think that thought. Yeah. And Shakespeare just knew you, you know, you could put that. He just said it. Yeah. <laughs> you could put a banner over the Holocaust Museum that said, did heaven look on and not yeah. take their part? And it's just like, ah. ah. <laughs> um, yeah, man. I said what you're thinking. I said what you're too scared to think. Right. Yeah. Or the scene where Macbeth, this is just another random example, the scene where Macbeth lists his duties to the king, you know, he's he's my guest, he's this, he's that. It's just like, oh, there's 6,000 6, different reasons not to kill the king. I only would have thought of one. He's my king and my kinsman. He's my guest. And also, he's a really great king. And every eye in heaven is going to see me do this and cry out for his blood. Yeah, and right. damn me to hell. That's why I shouldn't do this. <laughs> but my wife says I have no testicles. <laughs> so, well, hey. no, this, then he decides I'm not doing this. Right. And then, and then she says, uh, if I had sworn such as you, I would pluck the gumless. <laughs> That's my favorite line. Yeah. I love so, <laughs> um, Hey, easy there. <laughs> oh, sorry. Feminists are going to come get you, man. Yeah. <laughs> Sirens are wailing. <laughs> Sirens are wailing. <laughs> That was a double. You had a double meaning to sirens there. Yeah, Yeah. pretty good job. So is Macbeth a tragic hero in the Aristotelian sense, or is he just a villain? I know what my answer is. A tragic hero. Explain the Aristotelian. Well, in in tragedy, in 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 great tragedy, in classic tragedy, you have the villain. Or why don't you explain it? (laughs) In classic tragedy, you have the hero who actually has done nothing wrong in the end. But the fates come in and they 
everything just falls apart because of this one sometimes flaw in the tragic flaw yeah the hubris and especially in later theater it would become a flaw in their character in early theater it's just a flaw in fate so it's not like oedipus did anything wrong he didn't know he was murdering his father and marrying his mother yeah he he was he was (laughs) i hate it when that happens (laughs) he was murdering this guy who insulted him and then he married this beautiful woman that he he did nothing wrong but fate unfolds and he's destroyed and you're supposed to see in that the just the natural working of fate against you and how everything just comes to an end and then comedy redeems that by reversing it but with hubris it became a fatal flaw within the person and so if it wasn't for this one flaw they would be heroic right so is Macbeth like the many of the characters at the beginning of the play think of him a hero who has a tragic fatal awful flaw or are we just looking at the story of a villain driven mad by his own ambition I mean the sense that you get at the beginning is that he was a hero fight for the king he did he was seen as a great soldier it feels to me i'll just give my answer it feels to me like he's already made his pact with the devil Mm -hmm. before the play begins and one of the things that never quite tracked for me in the play is i always thought okay this is the story of a good man that goes bad this is uh this is the godfather or this is breaking bad and so i'm waiting for the moment where this good man suddenly makes that one bad decision that's going to lead to tragedy but at the end of the day he's already weak he's already (laughs) He's already broached the idea with his wife. He just needs a nudge. You know, it feels like we're we're not watching Breaking Bad season one. We're watching Breaking Bad season four or something like that. You know, we're watching a guy that's already bad and we're watching a villain and we're just watching the outworking of his one bloody act. Yeah, he I mean, the first person to suggest murder was himself. Mm-hmm. And he he doesn't have the he already crossed the line a long time ago. He doesn't have the moral fortitude or the whatever to actually say the word but that very first aside after the the witches uh hail him as king who is to be or whatever it was he's hinting at murder being being the way for and you kind of get the sense that he's feeling out banquo to kind of see where his allegiance is gonna is banquo gonna betray me he wants to have those conversations he writes to his and his wife she's why is it that you did that you wrote to me about about this thing. Why did you tell me in the first place? Mm. Why did you speed ahead of the king here to talk about this thing with me? Isn't it because what you really want is yeah. to do the deed? Methinks you doth protest too much, Macbeth. Fine. Mm. If you if you need me to hold you up, to prop you up, then that's what I'll do. If you need a helper, <laughs> then fine. Yeah, I think that for one, hubris is a weird, it's a weird idea. Like a lot of literary terms can be weird ideas mm-hmm. and they can be too simple, mm-hmm. right? Trying to encapsulate the hero with a fatal flaw and say, well, before the fatal flaw, he was heroic. It's just the, the seed had to have been there. Right. Right. And so hubris is the idea that the tragedy, the collapse is going to happen and that it's going to come about some way. And in this case, it's the ambition of Macbeth. But I think you're right. It's, it was always there. He just needed to push and a shove. It's not like he was ever a great hubris-free man. And then his wife and the witches gave him the hubris, and now he's diseased. And that's where the tragedy comes from. I think the tra- the weight of the tragedy comes from the fact that we know not only is it in him, but it's in you, right? That's where the tragic sense comes from. And so, like Aristotle would say, it's cathartic mm-hmm. to see it play out. It's not like it gets it you out of you, though, right? You see. It's more of a mirror than it is catharsis. Right. I just don't feel like, like in The Godfather, the tragedy of The Godfather is that Michael Corleone has a very clear point in his life where he can choose whether he's going to become a gangster or he's going to become a normal married man. 
and he makes a choice and you really feel the weight of this horrible choice that he makes. I don't really feel like we get that with Macbeth. I feel like that's already happened before the play starts and we're just watching the build up and the final bloody act of of mm-hmm. you know his career as already a bad man. I don't feel much sadness for him or much like oh gee you you had it in your grasp to really be better but you just gave into temptation in this one little way which led to a bigger way which i just kind of feel like we're watching the story of a bad man and i think that's it's the case with most of shakespeare's tragedies that like i don't know the idea of hubris doesn't completely help Mm -hmm. there is a fatal flaw sure the ambition's there sure but you can't just think that it's because of the fatal like the fatal flaw comes into the story and that's like the deus ex machina that Mm -hmm. now causes everything to fall apart it was already there just like it's lear's madness and it's uh i guess maybe the only one that has that clear format would be othello where he has the decision to make but yeah well so you see his weakness and his ambition from the beginning and you know that they've been there but the whole drama of the first act is him being pushed and driven and wavering and going back and forth. The, mm-hmm. There's no drama in the first act. You take that away of the the will he or won't he. And yeah, it may feel in, like a fait accompli because we are watching a Shakespearean tragedy. But but you take away those conversations, the drama, his waffling and his wavering. And <coughs> what's the point of the first act? I think you can argue that Shakespeare failed to give it as much tension as you would like. But but. I don't feel any tension at all. I, I, I really don't. And, um, well, yeah. Go ahead. What you said about the unnaturalness, especially of the witches, is helpful because the whole play starts in that. And so you. There's yeah, a reason. thunder and lightning or whatever in the play. <laughs> yeah, fair is foul and foul is fair and all that stuff. You get the witches and you get their beards, and it's, it's just, it opens up unnaturally, and then you get Macbeth. And I don't think there's ever a sense that he's pristine. Then he falls. I think that. The witches know his ambition is already there and that he's already twisted. But you at least need to see the setup of all the things that are going to conspire to make him make the decision to That's actually. Right. Yeah, and That's I don't, right. I don't drag, disagree drag with you. I, I just think for me it's more dramatically interesting to watch the unfolding of the ine- inevitable. There's never really any question in my mind, even kind of a hypothetical. Like everybody, the movie's called The Godfather. You know he's going to become The Godfather, but you know, for the sake of the drama you go along with, maybe he's not. There's never that kind of question in my mind for Macbeth. It's always just... But it still is interesting to see it on. Oh, yeah. Unfold. Oh, absolutely. There is oh, I think attention. what we're saying is eventually these literary terms and stuff, they're helpful to a point to get you started thinking about. I think, plays, there's, but, a, I think yeah. there's a sense in which if you can't enter in to the moment yourself as an audience member and see yourself being acted on by all of these other things and feel your own and feel and see how you might be pushed in that direction then you can't you can't sympathize with Macbeth and you can't really I don't know maybe it maybe I'm crazy but I feel like you know that whole first act is feeling the futility of what it would be like to be Macbeth in that position and to see I don't know but I feel the futility. I don't feel the struggle against the futility all that much. I mean, I I know he has some speeches where he's standing outside of himself and regarding the futility. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just rel- subjectively describing my own reaction to it. I just, for me, it's not a play about um, a struggle. A struggle. Because otherwise, it doesn't make sense to me that he rushes so headlong into becoming such a terrible thug. That in some sense, it's already 
accomplished. Yeah. Yeah, I I do think it's already accomplished, but I, I think he's got I don't it. Think you we, think you have I'm to I'm trying to figure out. I don't before think before you hold before no, I don't I don't, I don't We're talking past each other, right. but I think all I want to say is that at the end of the day there's a moment where you have the dagger in your hand and are you going to kill them right. and there are last things that have to be conquered mm-hmm. to get to that point. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. We're yeah. seeing the last things be conquered though. We're not seeing the only thing I'm really saying is we're not seeing the first things be conquered. It's in media rest. It's in media rest. And I think you're right, Brandon, that when you try and encapsulate it all in a phrase like tragic flaw or hubris, it, it doesn't quite do it, does it? Yeah, all I was thinking there is that these literary terms, they only get you so far. Eventually, you just have to do what Jake was saying. You have to live in the play and actually understand it on its own terms like you do every great piece of writing. And so, you know, you'll hear a lot of homeschoolers throw around the the word hubris and stuff and be happy that they know what that means. But then you're eventually going to get to a point where those terms aren't going to completely make sense of what you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And that's perfectly fine. Shakespeare had the right to do that. He was Shakespeare. Just like Bach had the right to not stay within the C major scale when he started with one piece and then it would shift and they're they're artists and they're masters and they know what they're doing. That sentiment if it were done when it were done, would that it were done quickly or whatever? I I think that's the, the sentiment that we all feel in the moment before we give ourselves to whatever great sins that are before us. Absolutely. So if you think, you know, we're all men in this room, but think about what it would mean to go through with an abortion. Mm-hmm. Think of everything that would have to lead up to it, what you would have to do to yourself, how you would have to get to the place where you were willing to walk in on the day and go under and... And then what it would do to you afterward. I think there are a lot of ways. If we think that Macbeth doesn't make sense as a normal person, if we try to make him into a monster that already is, it was already accomplished in his mind. It it was something that he needed the right pushes and the right things conspiring. But, you know, a woman has her boyfriend pushing her the way Lady Macbeth pushes Macbeth. She has has the circumstances of her life. (laughs) She has the clinic that's right there that she can go into and get it taken care of. She has the prophecies around her that everything will be wonderful for her after hmm. all of the societal pressures. And so she she does it. And she either spends the rest of her, of her life defending the decision and pushing other people to be as bloody as she is, or she wrestles with it. But all along, it's she's driven by her guilt and her and the pain of what she's done. And the consequences never quite leave her right. alone or let her be. That's not a bad analogy. I think the only thing I'm trying to say is there's a big difference between starting the story with a woman who says, I would never have an abortion, and starting the story one week before she does when the final pieces are coming into play and her boyfriend is putting all the pressure on her. That's just a different kind of story. And you have mm-hmm. to understand Macbeth as that story, not as the virtuous person goes from and the only reason I'm being so such a jerk about pressing this point is because trying to press Macbeth into the mold of virtuous person goes to bad person really confused me for a number of years and made me not understand the play. So I don't want anybody else to have to not understand the play because they're tr- looking for something that they think is supposed to be there but just simply isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's why we're having this argument if that's what it is it defies classification (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's why we're having two insecure people talk past each other for like a half an hour um (laughs) uh let's talk about lady macbeth just so long as you agree i'm right (laughs) (laughs) 
Lady Macbeth. She's a real piece of work, huh? Ain't she, though? <laughs> what What else is there to say about, about her that we haven't said? I don't know that there is, except for what my, uh, in the back of my Folgers thing, it says, um, Lady Macbeth and Duncan meet in a more particular way, positioned as they are on the same side of Scotland's basic division between warriors and those protected by warriors. The king is too old and fragile to fight. The lady is neither, but she is barred from battle by traditional gender conventions that assigned her instead the functions of following her husband's (laughs) commands and nurturing her young. Isn't this an easy way to fit something in that doesn't belong there? (laughs) In fact, of course, Lady Macbeth's actions and outlook thoroughly subvert this ideology as she fortunately takes the lead in planning the murder and shames her husband into joining in her. And the porter in delaying going and answering the door is... Questioning the dichotomy between master, master and servant. <laughs> uh, well, it's what just... other easy dichotomies can we fit into our analysis of this play? It's so horrible that people would try and make this monstrous Lady Macbeth into some kind of feminist hero. <laughs> like how how many how greedy and graspy at straws can you get to be that Lady Macbeth is actually like oh gender is. Poor gender conventions. And the witches, by growing their beards, are questioning the boundaries between male and female. (laughs) I'd just like to make it clear for anybody listening that uh, Lady Macbeth is not a nice person and not someone to be emulated in any way, shape, or form. Please don't go invite the demons to unsex you and inhabit your body so that you can commit murder. And then try to blame patriarchy on it. (laughs) (laughs) And... The thing that I think this person doesn't get at all that wrote this stupid afterward, my stupid edition of Macbeth, the very thing that makes her interesting is that she's a woman, you know? I mean, the very the fact that a woman should have the milk of human kindness is what makes the character interesting when they're not. Yeah, you don't get the sense that she's powerless. She Doesn't she say the only reason she didn't do it was because when he was Duncan was sleeping, he looked like her father? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, she... She's not some doll's house type of figure where she feels trapped by her husband. You just don't get that sense at all in this play. That's just really stupid. No, she turns her husband whichever way she wants. I mean, you would hope for better from a scholar than that sort of reading. But oh well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Brandon, but why does she feel like she has to become a man in order to be empowered? That's what you need to get at. Oh, Jake, you already told us why. (laughs) (laughs) It's unnatural, this... See, it's just if you just read the play and actually understand it on its own terms, it makes so much more sense. And you're so much more fair to Shakespeare than trying to fit the stupid readings that don't work. Like, oh my goodness, he can't have actually meant what he said about <laughs> Shylock. We got to protect Shakespeare from that. Well, I think they what they actually do is they rob her of. Well, they want to blame her corruption on anything other than herself. Mm-hmm. Anything other than the fact that she's a woman, and as a woman, her sins are going to be wanting power over her husband, manipulation, and then fear. Which is a pretty good description of yeah. her as she is, and also, I, mean, I don't know, Eve. Yeah, and so, yeah, to make the stupid point again about Shakespeare really understanding <laughs> people. <laughs> well, guess what? He really seemed, he he was married. He understood women. <laughs> He had a wife. To be the manipulative shrews that they are. Two two daughters. (laughs) I mean, he understood their, he he obviously understood their temptations and he knew if unchecked what they could become, which is a Lady Macbeth and and it's it's awful and she loses her mind and then kills herself. And people always wonder, I guess we should address, why, how is this character so monstrously possessed of willpower in the first half of the play and then after the murder why how how is somebody so 
committed to something and then and then even as you know a weak woman or what why does she fall apart so completely that she would kill herself i mean here's a woman that was telling her husband i've given suck but i'd rip the smiling gumless thing from my breast and dash its brains out on the ground and suddenly she's sad because they committed one little murder this may not this isn't the complete answer but one answer is there's a difference between ambition and then actually seeing the deed done and so after it's done and the blood's there and you there's the finality to it what has happened but just playing devil's advocate she handles it much better in the moment after the murder she says a little water will cleanse us of this she's still able to deceive herself yeah. a lot she's better. the one directing it hey let's go upstairs come on that's right. pull yeah, yourself put, together put the daggers on those guys i got them drunk fine i'll go do it i come back okay there's a knocking at the door let's go upstairs and let's get our bathrobes on or our bedrobes bed clothes on because people are going to think we're we've been awake this whole time and then you don't really have you kind of have it but you don't have the scene that you'd expect in any screenplay being written now where we see the beginning of her starting to fall apart i mean you, it's there maybe you could argue but you, you don't have a really big dramatic here's where she goes from point a to point b scene where the dots are just connected for you you kind of have to connect them to themselves and how do those dots connect well part of how they connect is in her sleep and so it's subconscious Hmm. right that is the one scene that we do get the maid is concerned and calls the doctor whatever however it happens and she sleepwalks that's a weird scene yeah where you get it all from the doctor's perspective yeah. And he's just watching and observing, almost like he's in the safari right. watching an animal. <laughs> yeah. That, but yeah, so that's – I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. So a lot of it does unravel beneath the surface for her. She's trying to put on – well, it's what the play is playing around with, mm-hmm. this idea of putting on a front, but what is actually behind the front. So you, you get a lot of what Macbeth is actually thinking and feeling because you hear it. But with Lady Macbeth, it's more behind the curtain. And until at you the finally, end of the day, she's still a woman. Yep. And at the end of the day, she still can't handle the deed. Yeah, they actually didn't make done. her sexless. She still is. You mean the spirits didn't unsex Lady Macbeth like she asked them to? <laughs> they didn't do it. So are you guys saying that the sex that you are actually determines something about like who well, you I, are or your I, personality? I, I, I don't it? think we're saying it. I think Shakespeare's saying it. <laughs> so Shakespeare is some kind of... <clears throat> I think Shakespeare's saying no matter how many pantsuits you put on, you're still a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Hillary Clinton. <laughs> In the eloquent words. <laughs> well, and then again, you have the... Thou pound suit does not thy true nature. You do have... Conceal. Conceal. The other side of things where she watches her husband become an insane monster and realizes that this is what she's done. And you In do part see her... what she's done to him. You do see her start to be like, hey, maybe we don't have to, you know, murder a bunch everybody. of Everybody. And he's like... <laughs> Scorpions <laughs> fill my mind. Scorpions. <laughs> Kill Banquo. His son got away. <laughs> kill those children in the castle. <laughs> Who else is there to kill? <laughs> she's just like, she's oh. terrified. Yeah. And so she's got a lot to, she knows it's all unraveling and it can't go, it can't end well, you know, at that point. And, you know, what's she supposed to do? It can't end well for her in this life. Her husband's a monster. Things are going to hell. And so is she, and she can't get that damn spot out. Yeah, it's interesting because you see that, but she's sleepwalking, like you said. And then, do we really see her again? No, we, no, she just disappears. We just know that she dies. Next time, yeah, somebody kills just somebody reporting that she died. So you get you only get her torture in the background. The way that what she's done is torturing her so badly. 
Um, it's interesting. But he, you, I think you get a good enough picture just in what Shakespeare lets you see. You see that she's trying to suppress it, but she can't because she wants to try and be the man she doesn't think her husband could be. But she can't. She's still a woman. It drives her insane. I'm sure the feminists who hate Shakespeare would see this as a sense, uh, this old introduction of hysteria, right? The hysteric woman. But there's a reason the hysteric woman became a trope. And all you get is she dies off stage. Well, the other thing that she... It, it's even sort of implicit, right? The, at the very, like in the very last page of the play, when, what's his face? Malcolm is assuming the crown. He says, somebody reports to him and or he says, I don't remember. It looks like she killed herself by yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's right. Something like that. It's not super explicit. And it's where Macbeth goes into his postmodern feel about life having no meaning, mm-hmm. right? Just to... <laughs> Where Shakespeare gets all meta. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think the other thing that you just – in our 21st century, it's so easy to be a son or daughter of your culture and to forget that there's this giant thing called guilt that is what is motivating both these characters. You watch enough shows like Game of Thrones, you start to forget that when you kill somebody, you killed somebody. You can't take that back. You can't unkill somebody they're dead and Mm -hmm. you have to stand before god and one thing that macbeth is always aware of even when he kills people he always says things like tonight your soul goes to heaven or to hell you know he's very aware of judgment he's very Mm -hmm. aware of eternal consequences for his actions he's very aware of heaven looking down and so is she and that's just it's assumed without that assumption, Lady Macbeth doesn't make sense. But the other line in the play that really does make me tear up a little bit is the one where she says in her sleepwalking, all the perfumes of Arabia could not sweeten this one little hand. How sad. Um, just like, <laughs> what a great what a great line. If you've ever felt guilty about something or if you've ever done something that you can't take back, it's just like, it doesn't matter what I do. How I do it, it doesn't matter. Guilt is kind of the driving force, and you have two responses. Well, multiple responses. You can either repent and change, but you don't really see that here. You Or you can just become the monster and deny it, or you can be driven mad by it. She's a monster and denies it beforehand. He's kind of a monster and denies it afterwards. And he doesn't deny it in that he won't contemplate it. He denies it in that he keeps barreling forward, murdering more people, piling up corpses trying to justify it just like okay now i've crossed the line so the witches should they be taken literally yeah explain first of all i think shakespeare probably believed in witches i think didn't james write a book on witchcraft and demonology and wasn't he prosecuting witches that that's king james folks yeah king james yeah he believed that witches were behind some of the misfortunes of his own and he prosecuted dynasty, so. people certainly the the masses that would have attended these plays even if you can't give it to shakespeare that he believed in them would have believed in witches and Mm -hmm. the kinds of things that he puts it i think that was one of the biggest draws of the play is that he was just like with any any movie or tv show that put that plays on the occult it's 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 trying to peel back the curtain show that supernatural realm that we're all sort of afraid of and what what actually does go on and shakespeare's two most two of his most popular plays start with a big supernatural bang hamlet you know with the ghost of hamlet's father just just as the hook to get us involved in the story and i read that people were suspicious that he gotten the formulas from actual witches gotten the 
Well, that's where the curse comes from, right? right. You're not supposed to say it or you're going to die. Yeah, or, or they stole an actual cauldron for the play from an actual... Apparently there's really no evidence for that, but... But those rumors don't happen in a vacuum. Those rumors that Shakespeare must have gotten th- this these weird uh, incantations from real witches or what whatever they come from a reality that that's what that's what people they wanted to believe that this was actually shakespeare lifting the veil he was showing them so there is power in the incantation the incantations might be real who knows like it's a part of the mystery and the power of the the play itself so yeah to to say that they're uh you know the imaginings of Macbeth or you know some something else is to just be rationalists who refuse to accept that people believe this sort of thing and there's a reality to that sort of thing yeah i I kept thinking uh while reading macbeth and thinking about it in preparation for this that the scene where macbeth goes and sees the witches the second time we actually have a story from the bible where something like that happens historically that is pretty similar i mean shakespeare gives it some some bombast and some special effects and stuff that maybe we don't have in the bible but we have a evil king going to a witch who brings someone back from the dead to give a portent of doom. And I believe 100% that that is something that actually happened. Just the way that the Bible says it does, there are people that say, well, you know, it wasn't really Samuel. I think it was Samuel. So we actually have a story of the exact thing that happens in the play that's so over the top or that feels so over the top and supernatural happening. I mean, it's certain parts are there that are obviously his madness, right? The dagger. Mm Mm-hmm. Though you don't know, it could those the, the brilliance of sh- this play is that you can't ever be sure that that's just as mad. Yeah, you right? don't know about like the dagger. Ghost, you don't you know, know about the you ghost. know Banquo's yeah. ghost. You don't know about the whispering Macbeth murders sleep or whatever. But the one is. thing that lets you kind of know for sure that the witches are to be taken seriously is that Banquo also sees them. Right. So you have two characters who see the witches. Mm-hmm. And so you know the witches are supposed to be real. They are characters in the play. And they both kind of see them evaporate because Banquo yeah. has that line about them being the earth has bubbles like the sea and the bubbles dissipate yeah. or whatever. Now Banquo, he voices what people who want to doubt the witch's voice. And they're like, is this just us? Did we get high on something, right? Right. You say, did we eat some root that's bad? But no, there's a sense of reality to that realm. At the very least, if you're not going to believe in the witches, you have to at least believe that Macbeth <laughs> believes in the witches and that he's in a culture that believes in the witches. I think that's not enough. I think you should just believe in the witches. But you have to at least take yourself out of a 21st century materialist kind of mindset. If you're going to understand the play, you have to understand that he had this real dramatic portent happened in his life that scared him and filled him with wonder and pushed pushed his whole plot forward in a way that it may not have been otherwise. And drew the line in the sand, and he decided to join the witches, right? And so if you think of this in terms of Beowulf, instead of fighting the dragon, he decided to jump on the dragon's back and burn down all the villages. Right. <laughs> so he, he, he became... Well, he joined, what was it, the League of Monsters that we decided? <laughs> the League of Monsters yeah. with Mr. Bennett um, and all the rest. Mark Twain. <laughs> Mark Twain. Robert Jordan, I think. Yeah. Rudyard Kipling. Rudyard Kipling. That's right. <laughs> wow. What a stranger. <laughs> I'd kind of like to join this League of Monsters. Sounds like a fun time. I, I really don't like the whole man born of woman trick. I think that's dumb. I don't like literary quibbles like that. Those kind of. <laughs> I am not a man born of a woman. C section. C section, hey. <laughs> Die. Die. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh no, that Macduff was from his mother's womb, untimely ripped. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's better than section. <laughs> One of the weird things is that there's not really much to say about any of the tertiary characters. They're not play doesn't get you invested in even in Banquo or. Uh, Macduff very much. Well, that one scene is very moving with Macduff. I agree with you. I, there's not much to say besides about anybody besides Macbeth or Lady Macbeth. I will say, for any time that I feel emotional, it's usually I like that little scene. I mean, Shakespeare was just, he was a good writer. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say Shakespeare was pretty good at what he did. The scene where uh, I'll give you that. <laughs> Lady Macbeth, the, the little scene, throwaway scene almost, where Lady Macduff is talking to her son and they have that little back and forth about honest men and the liars and traitors should be hanged. It's just like a nice, sweet little scene that suddenly makes her death and their deaths mean something. And it's just like... Uh, and it sets up Macduff's grief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And ties in with the te- themes of the play with liars and traitors and all that. So that's that's a nice scene. It's just a well-written little scene that you could cut from the play and no one would really probably notice. It doesn't affect the plot, but um, it sure does drive all the feelings probably lots of people have yeah i think maybe in fact i'm sure that fastbender did they didn't have that scene they didn't have that scene i guess we can talk about movie versions what movie versions have you seen have you guys seen or has, should people watch have you seen any movie versions of this no. so i'm not going to be much help here they're not really a famous one the fastbender one just came out i've already said i don't like that would you recommend the fastbender version it's very pretty yeah i mean the acting is good and the cinematography is really beautiful but it's really boring. They they cut enough of the play that it just doesn't really make sense somehow. Mm-hmm. The Patrick Stewart version to me actually, which is like a third longer, felt shorter because I was tracking with everything in a way that I wasn't. Where can you get the Patrick Stewart one? It's actually free online at PBS. So you can find it on online at PBS or if you have like Apple TV, you have an app or something like that. Uh, the PBS app, you can watch it. Nice. Yeah, I would say that version's well worth watching. Don't watch it with the kids. It's a little uh, gruesome in parts, but... Yeah, it's, it's pretty creepy. Yeah, they, they do a good job of making the witches real creepy. And they kind of have a rap song, which I thought was interesting. Boil, boil, toilet. I mean, almost exactly. It's like a dubstep type. <laughs> <laughs> the line that really made us laugh in the Stuart version was after Macbeth is like ranting about the ghost and everything and all the people are, you know, <laughs> and, and then his wife is just like... Thou hast killed the mirth. <laughs> I really want to catalog that one for future for future use. One and any anytime someone has a party foul or like thou hast killed the mirth. Thou hast killed the mirth. <laughs> The Book of Ink today was written and produced by me, Nathan Alberson. It was performed by Nathan Alberson. <coughs> Jake Menzel. <coughs> and Mr. Brandon Chastine. You can go to warhornmedia.com for lots more great po- uh, well, podcasts and products and stuff. And read our books, buy our stuff, rate us highly on iTunes. Thank you very much. Coming up next time, Dracula. Dracula.